Hi and welcome to 20-Minute Fitness. Today we will attempt to learn from the past. Prior to the rise of modern medicine and pharmaceuticals, much of the world relied on traditional medicine such as herbal remedies. In China actually, traditional medicine remained the primary form of healthcare until the early 20th century when China began opening up towards the West. Today, just like in most places of the world, Chinese doctors are trained and licensed according to the state-of-the-art medical practices. Yet at the same time, traditional medicine or TCM remains a huge part of the Chinese healthcare system with entire hospital wards devoted to its ancient cures. Lately, the practice of melding the modern with the traditional has also spread over to Western healthcare consumers. Because it is often when we don't find relief from our modern medicinal practices that Americans are increasingly turning to traditional treatments such as acupuncture, which is now even covered by some health insurance plans, or cupping, a muscle therapy method that involves suction and is endorsed by many professional athletes. These days, you can even find scientists from leading universities like UCLA, Duke, and Oxford that are looking at the scientific underpinnings of some of those traditional treatments for diseases such as cancer, diabetes, and Parkinson's. Recognizing those changing dynamics, the WHO has started to include TCM in its latest versions of its International Classification of Diseases documentation, which is used by healthcare practitioners around the globe for the definition and diagnosis of medical conditions. I'm Martin Katzler and you're listening to 20-Minute Fitness, proudly brought to you by ShapeScale, your personal 3D body scanner that keeps you in shape. For today's show, we've invited Dr. Marcus Gardau, who has been practicing Chinese medicine for close to two decades. Marcus spent over 10 years in China actually studying Chinese medicine at some of the best TCM universities, first in Beijing and later in Hong Kong. He is now a leading TCM practitioner in Germany, and I've wanted to bring him in for today's show to shed some light on how TCM could potentially have a positive impact on our lifestyle choices. It's going to be a two-part show, and during this week's show, we will explore how TCM looks at your emotional well-being and nutrition, and next week we will discuss sleep, exercise, and your sexual well-being. Disclaimer, while Chinese medicine has been around for thousands of years, it is really just at the cusp of being scientifically looked at and understood. It is a hugely fascinating topic that we wanted to share with you today. It is, however, not medical advice by any means, nor an endorsement of the scientific validity or efficacy of any of its practices or interventions. Hey, Marcus, welcome to the show. Hey, Martin. Well, I have to say, I've been really looking forward to it because we've known each other now for, well, over a decade. And, well, you had taken quite an interesting path of going real deep into Chinese medicine, studying it, and you're now actively practicing this, well, ancient art over in Europe. And anyways, I've been really wanting to do this show on Chinese medicine because over the past few months, we've covered quite a few interesting topics here on the podcast about, you know, the microbiome, nootropics, recovery, metabolic health, and so forth. And I felt a lot of the conclusions that we're drawing in our recent age seem to have actually been practiced for thousands of years in Chinese medicine. And that brought me back to you. But before we go deep into this topic, why don't you first tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into Chinese medicine in the first place? Yeah, sure. So um, I was playing a lot of basketball and tennis when I was a kid, a teenager, and um, had frequent injuries and went to all the orthopedics and the doctors, a bunch of Western medicine treatments that didn't quite help. And then I went to this guy who was practicing Japanese acupuncture. So they're mm -hmm. just using really, really thin, fine needles that you almost don't feel. And I remember um, going up to his office, I could barely move, I get out of my car because my knee was hurting so bad at the time it's like an acute right. brain and um and then and then he just put a bunch of needles somewhere and then i hopped off his bench and uh, like if nothing ever was you know uh, like if nothing ever was wrong and i i remember you know it took me like forever to get up the stairs there and and then i just hopped down and that um, of course made quite an impact on me really that, that was like immediate 
the immediate effect. yeah mm-hmm. wow that must have left an impression and and you tried like uh well traditional western medicine to treat your knee at that time yeah just conventional stuff you know yeah. you know painkillers etc right uh, physiotherapy all, all the things that they give you if you go to an um, and none of that worked orthopedic specialist none of that worked no not i mean oh. for some things it worked and then and then the same guy he's always like oh you know by the way the reason why you always have back and knee pain and why you have such bad acne in your face and your low energy levels and that you're always cold that all is just you know the branch of the same root so it's all it all kind of links up together with the same root cause and mm. uh, and then he gave me a bunch of herbs and two three months later up in you know, i had this really cystic acne it was really bad i was doing a lot of western medicine things that that took quite a toll on my health too at the time because um these injections are quite they're messing with your system a lot they're drying you out your sebaceous glands and all the glands pretty much everywhere and so there's a lot of side effects and then he gave me a bunch of herbs so it's completely natural and um you know that that made my helped me keep my back pain away and made my my pimples significantly Hmm. reduce uh and so i was that, that that's what got me hooked and then i always wanted to become a doctor so uh, and i had a good uh, high school degree so i got a, a a scholarship and i read in the fine print in the scholarship that i could pretty much use it anywhere and so i was thinking do i go to the united states do i stay in germany do i go to china you know and it's, ever since then you know i was interested in chinese medicine also and um and that's actually where we met <laughs> so yeah so um i got a you know i had a had a spot at a good german university uh, medical uh, school and uh I didn't go and instead you and me we went to China to become English teachers <laughs> for a few months and uh, while while teaching there you know we didn't have much to do teaching so we went around uh, I, I went around there's over 4,000 what they call integrative medicine hospitals so it's Chinese medicine and Western medicine together combined in different departments of course and everybody does what they're good at but they're essentially working together and I spent a lot of time uh, during these three three four months in China in one of those hospitals and then I signed up at a Chinese university instead of the German one and I studied what they call uh, so Chinese medicine and Western medicine combined with the focus being on the Chinese medicine side though. Right. and I completed that study and it's a five year degree mostly in Chinese language most of my classes were essentially in Chinese language in the beginning we had a little bit of English classes in the Western medicine and then the teachers kind of because their English was so bad they just started <laughs> teaching us in Chinese anyways even though we were like the international class and that was all in Beijing right? that was all in Beijing five years in Beijing and then I went to Hong Kong for another five years where we met again <laughs> and uh, and I did my PhD there in what's called evidence-based Chinese medicine so we're using modern scientific methods like uh, clinical trials placebo-controlled randomized uh, controlled trials uh, and instead of you know giving you xyz drug we're using for example an an ancient acupuncture protocol for, in my case, it was elbow pain. It's like a 2,000-year-old acupuncture point protocol that they've been using mm. since at least 2,000 years for elbow pain. And we looked at it, you know, with the eyes of um, of modern science and understanding and how that stuff works. Uh, but we are applying these ancient principles. And the same I want to do for you today with these five health tips for 2020, TCM health cultivation wisdom. That's what they call right. it for staying healthy. So I want to give you a, a few tips and I have a bunch of quotes from the ancient book. And then I also pulled up uh, a few research studies that kind of back up what they're saying or giving another
another perspective on it. So we're, awesome. we're using these these ancient time tested principles, and then we're we're also looking at them, you know, from a, from, from the lenses of scientific method or of, of modern science. And, and before we go into that, can you give us a small primer? I mean, you mentioned that even in China, they practice a mix between well, what they consider Western medicine or what is in our case conventional medicine and traditional Chinese medicine TCM. What do you use TCM for, and what what does it actually entail? So you know, TCM has many many um, branches, just like Western medicine has dermatology and gynecology and so forth. Basically, the equivalent is for internal medicine, so our whole range of pharmaceuticals would be their equivalent would be uh, Chinese herbs, the Chinese uh, mm -hmm. phyto phyto medicine. So those are all you know natural remedies, and the, those would be consumed how like. Uh they would be dried and ground or they would be cooked or yeah traditionally they would you know traditionally they'd be, be cooked in what they call a decoction like a little soup and then you drink it every day but nowadays nobody does that anymore um so there's these huge factories that are making these chinese herb granules or powders and then right. uh and then your chinese medicine doctor he looks at you and prescribes a formula to you and then the pharmacy actually pushes the, these granules into pills and you're just taking the pills just like you would be taking western medicine the only difference is that a, it's all natural and uh, and and, or, and hopefully organic. So there's very little to no side effects on your livers and kidneys because it's all herbal uh, extracts. And, and we're talking real herbs, or we, we're, we're talking also like I don't know, ground deer antlers or tiger penis or something like that, like you sometimes hear in the media. Yeah. So I would say, you know, of course, in the mainstream Chinese medicine, all these things that you mentioned, like tiger penis and, and rhinoceros or and they play no role whatsoever because there's a lot of herb plants uh, herb mm. products that you can replace them with um however there's always uh, black sheep right and so especially in the <laughs> south of china you know where tiger penis is still traditionally um seen as like an aphrodisiac or in the oh. south of asia actually um so you will always find these people but you know 99 i mean everything that goes on in a chinese medicine clinic or even in the chinese chinese medicine hospital system which is nationalized uh, there's nothing like that so you know of course there's these black sheeps but it gets unproportionately right. reported of so there will be nothing you would ever get when you go like to a hospital in China. That's really something that you would get on the black market, maybe. Oh, of course, not even not over here. No, not even in the black market, perhaps. Yeah, but you know, all that stuff is highly, highly regulated, and especially over here in Europe, mm. it gets more and more regulated every year. So a lot of plants that are really important, we we can't use anymore anymore because they have a slight toxicity but of course if you're you know a trained chinese medicine physician you know in what dosages and in circumstances you can use these herbs so no i mean there is basically no chance whatsoever to get any endangered species uh, right and and, and in what in what cases would you use herbs compared to you know like uh, western pharmaceuticals like you know pills or anything like that right so the other advantage is that you don't take these herbs forever like um, they're just there to fix your body like for mm -hmm. example treat high blood pressure as opposed to a western high blood pressure drug that you have to take for the rest of your life pretty much so chinese medicine always aims to treat the root cause and you know western medicine and, and i don't want to oppose these these two because there is you know the combination is what really matters and that's what they practice mm. in china and so if you have uncontrollable hi hypertension you know it's great to put you on a blood pressure med medication a strong one first until we get a few things sorted out and then perhaps with lifestyle intervention and chinese medicine therapy acupuncture and herbs mostly but there's a lot more therapies but those are the two main ones we can get your blood pressure under control so that you essentially don't need the western drugs anymore but then of course for example if you are in a car accident or if there's anything acute or life-threatening 
that's, of course, where Western medicine excels. And then Chinese medicine in its nature is rather a preventative medicine. So um, they always looked at um, what makes things get old or how nature works mm. and, and how the seasons change and how animals and, and the plant world adjusts to these seasonal changes. And, and, uh, and so they are more of a preventative medicine. And then another thing that they have, which plays a really big role in Chinese medicine, is uh, tonics. So Chinese medicine, um, you know, it's you know the second law of, phys- of thermodynamics. Everything is uh, starting to deteriorate, basically. And so Chinese medicine, of course, we're aging, but um, Chinese medicine tries to make you age nicely uh, and uh, make you age well, live long mm-hmm. and live well. And so there is the concept of that. You know, when you have an acute inflammation, you need to take an anti-inflammatory and, and things like that. But then once that initial stage of disease is cleared, for example, with your high blood pressure and your high triglycerides, and and, and then we treated you with herbs and we got your blood pressure under control and you adjusted your lifestyle and you're not eating that much junk and you're sleeping earlier and and your, you know, your, your, your blood sugars improve, your blood pressure improves, your, your biomarkers improve. And, and now, and now we're looking at the body in in a little bit of a different way than Western medicine does, even though we're also looking at it purely from a biophysiological point of view. And I'm going to talk about this in a second, but now we're giving you tonics or things like ginseng or other plants that are, you know, nowadays known to, for example, increase endogenous androgens. So, you know, these Mm. precursor hormones to testosterone and stuff that are important to age well. And we're just basically making, you know, making sure that the patient ages well and doesn't, and with the, with some diagnostics that, that Chinese medicine has that of course are no replacement for lab work or for images like MRIs. But um, in, in some instances, we can see already, for example, in the pulse at a radial artery that there is a disease cooking that is in Western medicine still quite preclinical and couldn't be picked up. But in the in the pulses, they speak very, very clearly to you. And so we can treat disease before they really happen. And the patient notices too, because they are some symptoms that traditionally or conventionally in Western medicine wouldn't be associated, wouldn't be associated with uh, a disease. But in Chinese medicine, we see these symptoms as precursors to these disease or pre-indicators. And, uh, and that's pretty much how this medicine works. So we're trying to treat you before you get sick. And then the other thing I wanted to throw in here is that, you know, Chinese medicine always has this, has this feel to it that we're balancing your energy and your chakras and we're moving the energy and through your, through your meridians and things like that. And that's a, that's actually a misunderstanding. That's where the Westerners kind of mingled our Ayurvedic medicine, where there is the chakras and the prana and the nadis, and there is an energy body, and they mix that with the Chinese concept. The Chinese actually went away from this. The, the whole thing that got Chinese medicine on the on the radar about two two and a half thousand years ago is that they said, you know, we got to stop with this shamanistic stuff mm. and say that all disease is because you upset your ancestors, and we're looking at it through a biophysiological angle. And so they actually applied the uh, the scientific principle of doing observations and making hypotheses and null hypotheses and making experiments and analyzing the results. Uh, They just did it with a different terminology and a different uh, worldview, but they were essentially using the scientific method as we know it nowadays. I'll I'll give you a funny example. There's a Chinese herb called yin yang huo, which translates into horny goat weed. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what they did is they observed these wild goats or 
even domesticated goats. And then at a certain time of year, they would eat a lot of this herb that would grow and then they would watch them copulate mm. a lot. <laughs> and then, and then, and, you know, and then they saw, okay, this is what it does if we, if we cook it and ingest it, I mean, drink it. And, um, and then later out nowadays, of course, we found out that it actually increases your, your body's production of uh, testosterone and cortisol and stuff. So we use it for people who are in, incontinent or who are, can get pregnant or again mm. to age well when testosterone drops. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, even though Chinese medicine sometimes sounds a bit funky and uh, antique, the, the, the things that speak for it or, or why should we listen to TCM in the first place is that it, A, you know, uses the scientific method and B, it is, you know, time tested. I mean, there's, there's so many things from uh, a teapot to the design of a parachute to how to make a good souffle. These are all things that went through time-tested processes that we generally trust. And, um, and, and the TCM, you know, has a history of over 2,000 years and people sorted out over this span of generations and generations what worked and what didn't. And, um, and so Western medicine in comparison is still in its infant shoes. And if you would imagine like where Western medicine will be in about 1,800, 2,000 years, that's basically what Chinese medicine has already completed. So they're looking empirically, they're looking back at a lot more of, you know, time-tested truths, so to say. Right. And it's not just uh, grounded in, you know, like hearsay and impressions and anecdotal evidence. There are actually clinical studies that are now done with placebo groups and uh, blind studies. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, of course. I mean, acupuncture, quantitative-wise, is the most early researched pain treatment method on earth simply because there's just a bunch of papers coming out every day out of the People's Republic of China. But there's a bunch of good papers too. Like I I, I actually conducted and um, basically managed a, uh, a multi-center trial of, of acupuncture, a clinical acupuncture trial uh, to the most modern standards of methodology. And it was, a f we had four centers, one in China, one in Hong Kong, one in Australia, and one in Italy. And, uh, and you know, we, we pulled all this data together. It was different, you know, cultural background so of course you know there's a different placebo effect if you perform acupuncture in china than if you would perform it in italy or australia or even hong mm -hmm. kong to some extent interesting so yeah there's a lot of research and not only that like if you look back at the chinese history already in the seventh century there was the first imperial medicine universities pretty much the, the taiyi shu it was the first the world's world's first state financed medical university or for example in the, in the 10th uh, century the chinese already started uh, a vaccination my viralization against um, smallpox and um, and only in the 18th century so 800 years later we had that over here in Europe or, or another example of the you know the way that they used the scientific method is in the first century already they had paper ninth century they had gunpowder 11th century they had the compass and in the 11th century they also started the, the book print the printing of books Mm. I mean, they were they were highly advanced in their thinking, even though we, we you know, nowadays smile at them and just think it's, like you say, hearsay and energy stuff, but it's it's actually the contrary. They, another example, already in the second century, they had, the, they had the concept of the endocrine system, you know, your hormones that was not known in the Western world until many, many hundreds of years later. Or in, in 1232, they already had, even though it was small, but they already had rocket technology. Yeah, and the Chinese invented gunpowder, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot that actually originated off China. There's a lot of things, yeah. So that's that's why, um, you know, I, a, lot, a lot of times, you know, we think nowadays, you know, we're the first people to, to talk about carnivores versus vegans or should we constantly eat or should we fast more or all these things. 
high carb versus low carb, you know, this is not the first time that humanity has thought about these things. And if we would just look back in the books, we would see that, you know, people have tested this thousands of years ago and uh, actually already have the results that we're right. still waiting. You know, uh, and, and my impression is that Chinese medicine is actually putting way more emphasis than our medicine on preventive healthcare and basically altering our lifestyle choices to prevent certain diseases in the first place from curing, right? Exactly. So I have a great quote here because that's actually the, the, what, how I wanted to start yeah. this talk is a, is a quote from the what's called the Yellow Emperor, which is one of the, um, the, the major books in Chinese medicine. Um, and it's from the second century BC. And it says uh, roughly translated, the wise did not treat those who were already sick, but those who were not yet sick. They did not try to fix what was already in this array, but they, they prevent it from being disorganized in the first place. Mm. Treating diseases after they occur is like digging a, a well when you're already thirsty or welding weapons when the fight has already started. Wouldn't that all be a little late? So that's how this book basically starts. And, you know, it's yeah, good. It's much more difficult of, to fix something that's already broken than actually preventing that from ever happening in the first place. Yeah. And, and so the whole medicine is tailored that way. So there's formulas and there's acupuncture thing, you know, like you try to get the body before it goes into a chronic pain cycle. You're trying to re reestablish like neurological homeostasis by not letting your brain develop these chronic pain loops and uh, or with herbs you're treating somebody you know already when they're young and they have a little bit of asthma and allergies before it goes into like a full-blown asthmatic condition and actually the ancient doctors in china until a cultural revolution they were still paid they they, they were paid by a whole family so you're always a family physician mm -hmm. and they only got paid uh, until uh, i mean if all the family members were healthy the doctor was paid as soon as one family member got sick they they stopped getting paid oh that's a strong incentive <laughs> correct the incentives were aligned uh, for keeping people healthy <laughs> as opposed to nowadays. I mean, Western medicine, you know, don't get me wrong, this sounds like I'm picking on Western medicine and I'm not. It's just that Western medicine is really good at treating disease when it's acute and, or when it's life-threatening and it's not so good at treating it once it's chronic, you know, then we're putting you on insulin for the rest of your life or on high blood pressure medication for the rest of your life, but we're not really, the medicine does not, almost does not allow to, to look at it in a deeper way, whereas Chinese medicine was made to be preventative mm. and was made to focus on vitality and keeping your vitality then rather than treating disease. Yeah, you're not saying one should necessarily skip chemotherapy when they have cancer and, I don't know, go for an acupuncture treatment instead. Um, that's more like something that they may have done earlier, actually. Right. If the cancer is already there or, you know, if the stroke has already happened, by all means, you know, you need to get into urgent care and do what you deem to be right. Uh, you know, get lysis. I mean, you know, for example, in a, in, a, in, a, in a stroke, you know, resolve the blood clot in the brain and stuff like that. But then as... Uh, in rehabilitation, for God's sakes, go get a go get, go get acupuncture treatment. There's so many trials, good trials that show that recovery is much better. Right, and also strengthening your immune system, which is like super important after chemo, right? Yeah, correct. Or for example, this whole um, Corona crisis back in 2003, we had SARS, and there's actually a formula that uh, scientifically proven uh, boosts your T cells. You know, the specific immune system boosts your T cell count and uh, and has antiviral, antibacterial properties too. It's it's an ancient formula called Yuping Fangsang. It has a lot of astragali in it, a uh, uh, which is known to be you know immune 
supportive agent. Mm -hmm. And and there's actually, there was a good trial in a Hong Kong hospital uh, system uh, and all the healthcare workers, they, they got uh, administered this, this formula and they had a significantly lower infection rate with, with the SARS. So especially, you know, again, it's prevention and then rehabilitation. That's where, where Chinese medicine shines and that where, that's where we should use or in the treatment of chronic diseases, especially chronic pain. This is where Chinese medicine comes in and, and can, like in my case, actually deliver a better care because it's just suited better by the by the by the inventors. <laughs> right. So so you wanted to actually talk about a few best practices that anybody can integrate into their lifestyle even without necessarily seeing a doctor, right? Right. So yeah, so basically there is a miss I mean generally speaking there's this big mismatch between what our genes evolutionary expect from us and what the modern world presents us with. So genetically we're wired to have like a you know a eight hour work week and relax most of the time and eat seasonal and live with the seasons, be a little cold in winter, be hot in summer, sleep a lot, hang around with our folks in the tribe and things like that. And then and then nowadays and even back in the days of the Chinese, they you know they they had a lot of stress and they had famine because they relied on, on a single grain and uh, their diet was not that not, not, not that seasonal and you know they had I mean nowadays we have central heating so it's always the same temperature mm. and we're always eating the same food and we have a little little sleep and little human connection <laughs> and a lot of stress so there's this big mismatch that a lot of people make responsible for this poor health mm. in general I don't know if you know but generally life expectancy is already declined again so we're not actually getting older than our parents anymore for these people who are born in the last few years and and Chinese medicine already seen this gap back in 2000 years when civilization started and we started to go away from the natural people so to say and then they came up with these what they call uh, health preservation uh, to basically close the gap and i want to present these these ancient methods that still apply today as they did 2000 years ago to help us live a more species appropriate <laughs> lifestyle well, let's have at it. Just on a, a quick note, a lot of what I present here is actually from a book called Live Well, Live Long by Peter Detman, because he's done exactly what I'm what I, what I wanted to do is he, he basically paired up these ancient principles with modern research. And so a big shout out to Peter Detman. So let's get started. So the first and foremost advice in Chinese medicine to you know get healthy through 2020. <laughs> and a lot of people think now it's it's going to be food or it's going to be sports or it's going to be sleep. But what the Chinese deem most important is actually to moderate your emotions and your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And this sound, might, might sound a little yeah, weird, but they say mean. that the, in, <laughs> yeah, the, the internal, your internal um, life is, is almost more important than what's going on on the outside. And so I have a quote here from uh, 7th century Yang Xin Yang Ming Lu. It's a book on how to live healthy. And that was yeah from the 7th century. And it says, the fact that people do not live their full destiny, meaning or get as old as they could and in many cases die earlier is because they do not love and appreciate themselves instead they exhaust themselves with anger and competition they're striving for fame and profit and they're accumulating toxins and are damaging their soul so mind you this is mm. from the 7th century and just on the on the counter of it I, I, there's a little research here 1999 Everson and others a Finnish study that showed that men who are often angry have double the risk of uh, getting a stroke Wow. Or another study from Cotton and others in 2004 is 
they found out that most the most common answer when asking stroke patients whether something significant had happened before the stroke, up to two hours before the stroke, was an outbreak of anger. That was the most common answer or an intense negative emotion like mm. being angry or, or severely upset about something. And so the Chinese highly, highly stress to, to moderate your emotions. It's, it sounds funny to us Westerners, but the Chinese actually worship or, 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 or treasure tranquility and not being too joyful even, but also not being too angry, kind of being medium. Right. But, but cannot that sometimes also lead to like a build up, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm particularly thinking maybe about even further, you know, like when I look at the Japanese culture where you harbor a lot of sometimes negative emotions inside of you without actually voicing that, right. that can also actually create some negativity in the long term, I think. That's true. And and actually the ancient books, they warn from that because you're learning the Asian cultures, they're, you know, a lot more keeping their anger in. Uh, and they're also warning from that, but they're they're more 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 like more saying is like you know through the practice of uh, mindfulness or uh, even hobbies and movement and sports if you're all day sitting there and um, constantly having to think and perform mm. mental work you should you should go to out there and exercise and if you're angry at your boss go run you know and you build a lot of adrenaline a lot of a lot of heart attacks actually happen that way when you know you get really angry and then and then your body you know, push a lot of adrenaline in your blood, but you're not really letting it out because it was originally there to actually fight your opponent or run away from the tiger. And now a lot of mental stress is causing the buildup of adrenaline and we get angry, but we're, we're not letting it out. So, you know, having a hobby where you're actually moving your body and, you know, uh, run off the adrenaline, so to say, these are kind of things that the Chinese would tell you, or, you know, to, to release your mm. anger, maybe not in a burst of, you know, strong emotions and having a, an anger fit, but, you know, when something upsets you to, uh, you know, immediately let it out and don't, don't, um, don't, you know, eat it in, so to say. Right. Yeah. Running and, and cycling are both great stress relief for me. Uh, what, what are actually your thoughts on, on like the opposite, not moving at all and meditating, for example, but not trying to think right like to really dive deep into your thoughts yeah the chinese principle is i mean we, we're gonna go to movement that's one of the mm -hmm. tips but the chinese actually warn you from thinking too much because excessive thinking and pondering about things constantly is also harming you so uh, a, a great uh, tip from chinese medicine is that especially uh, and i don't know if you had the situation but especially after you had a, a large meal you should uh, not go into like you know uh, heated debates about this or that or have you know, immediately after food, you shouldn't be starting to like go back to your mental work and perform high uh, uh, mental work, so to say, because your body actually needs that blood in the digestive tract. So when you eat, mm. the body flips over into parasympathetic mode and it wants to rest and digest and all the blood is uh, a big proportion of the blood is, is, of course, there's always blood in the brain, but there's a lot of blood going away from the periphery of the body towards the center, towards the digestive system. And if you're now like having a heated debate uh, and getting all sympathetic, your your uh, digestive system actually gets gets you know shut off to some extent and you get indigestion problems and the, and the blood is rushing back to the brain so um you know this happened a lot to me when you know when i would like have dinner with friends and then we would get into like a heated debate that i'm passionate about <laughs> yeah and then i would like end up with stomach cramps or with diarrhea and i would feel like i wouldn't feel good and and then i was like damn you know so it actually upset your metabolism that's that's interesting. Correct. Yeah. So when you're when you're having having a dinner with friends, you should socialize and have a glass of wine and talk about light topics and not immediately go back to work or you know you know have an, have a have a heated debate about the meaning of this or that or 
you know, whether you should go or whether you should be a carnivore or a vegan. Right. <laughs> and then what, what do you think is like a reasonable time there? Like, let's say, you know, you have lunch and before you can head back to work, like 30 minutes, 60 minutes. You should leave half an hour. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good rule of thumb. Leave 30 minutes, but you can already feel it. All these tips are actually pretty cool because, you know, you don't need a great biohacking device to tell you. You can just listen to your, to your sense of vitality and you'll, you'll, you'll feel, you, you'll know what's mm. right for you. For most people, it's a, it's a 30 minute thing. And um, going back to a little bit to these emotions and, and stresses here, there's a great study here, the Longevity Project, and they followed 1,500 Americans from birth in 1920 throughout the present day. And, um, and they actually found out that, that if you're working 10 hours rather than seven hours, sorry, this is another study, but if you're working 10 hours rather than seven hours, this increased your risk of developing heart disease by 60%. And they also mm. found out that workplace pressure was the single biggest cause of sickness in the UK. This was the UK Stress Management Society report uh, in 2010. And so what I'm what I'm saying is, you know, these these uh, all this unusual amount of stress that we put upon ourselves nowadays is uh, is really working against us and where you know we're we want to have the big car and we're working 13 hours a day and uh, you know as the saying goes we spent the first 30 years making money and s s sacrificing our health and then we spent the last 30 <laughs> Right. sacrificing our money to try to recover our health. And an ancient Chinese saying, which I think is maybe the most important thing, and if there's only one thing that the listeners take away from, from this, I, I think it would be this one, is that uh, the Chinese always say that we should use material things to nurture our nature and not to use our nature to nurture material things. And, um, and, and that's a big thing to keep in mind when you get really upset why, you know, this person has, has the big car or, mm. the, you know, they're already further ahead. Or, you know, when you're thinking to yourself, do I rather spend a little bit more time with my family or do I go for the promotion? You know, these, these internal things like stress and sorrow and anxiety, they really wear on you. And, uh, and that's why it's the, it's the number one principle of trying to balance your body with hobbies and a good work-life balance. And, and what, what about the, the flip side of that, right? I mean, there's anxiety, stress, and maybe anger that is sometimes a result out of that. But what about happiness, appreciation? Like, I know, like, some people are advocating for, you know, journaling, like, appreciating things more, or, like, you know, jotting down what they're happy about. Yeah, there's some... Um, <clears throat> the, the Chinese are really big into uh, laughter and gratitude and being content. And, of course, um, meditation and these kind of yoga techniques, these slow... Mm -hmm movements that are parasympathetically stimulating so so uh, for example a chinese proverb goes enjoy yourself it's later than you think or be cheerful whether you're rich or poor he who does not laugh can only be a fool and um and the chinese are really really emphasizing the the concept of um contentment mm. and so so uh, uh, another famous Ch chinese proverb and, and those listeners who come from a chinese family they probably heard this is that the uh, a chinese man would love to have his own hut on his own mountain. But if he can only have, uh, you know, if he has to live in the city and he can only have a little bird in a cage and a plant in a pot, then that will be fine too. So um, they're really into keeping their emotions calm and uh, and uh, keeping themselves happy. And, um, and here I found another study. Um, it was uh, termed that um, here the power of happiness was illustrated that um, the study found that an individual, happen individual happiness is in part dependent on the happiness of their social network, uh, their friends and family who lived in close proximity up to two miles. And if any person within the social networks becomes happier, the effect wraps off on other members of the network. 
Right. I mean, there are definitely those network effects, right? Like the people that, you know, like you're, you're kind of like the sum of the people that you, s- you surround yourself with, right? Like if you have a lot of people that are maybe harboring negative thoughts or depressed, that is also going to rub off on you, right? Exactly. And so in Chinese medicine, we always say uh, unhappy people make happy people unhappy. <laughs> and so and so if you're, you know, if your spouse is, is always unhappy, of course, you're going to get unhappy. And that those, I mean, we, I don't need to quote the studies of how unhappiness, you know, takes from your life. Here, there's this, there's this great study, they called it subjective well-being, SWB is defined as life satisfaction. In the absence of negative emotions, positive uh, optimism and positive emotions, and people with a high SWB score are likely to live up to 10 years longer than people with a low subjective well-being SWB score. Right. So, so um, Chinese medicine always tells you to, you know, to round, surround yourself with happy people and uh, and to just to keep your emotions, you know, uh, at a at a at a moderation and, and even your thoughts. You know, you shouldn't be thinking too much, especially after you ate, because uh, excessive thinking uh, is also not good. And and so those, those are perhaps principles that are not really practiced in the West. We don't really have this concept. And so that's why I wanted to share it with your listeners. Yeah, sometimes we, we I guess, value the wrong things, right? Like you said, you know, materialism is definitely a big factor. And often that involves working long hours, not taking that vacation, not, you know, taking the time to rest, not taking the time to practice our hobbies that are making us happy and that are essential for stress relief. Exactly. And maybe as a last note on this point, um, there was also, this is what I wanted to say in the, in the first place. On the, on, the, on the contrary, you know, the, the Chinese also say that, you know, for example, the Japanese have this concept of I think they call it ikigai, you know, this like meaning to life. And the, and the, and the Chinese have that too, that, that you should always have a meaning to your work. It shouldn't just be to make money. You should, you should work, you know, you should do what makes you happy mm. and what gives you meaning. And, uh, and you know, retirement, like, you know, the, the usual move to Florida and die <laughs> is what really happens because people are losing what was meaningful to them. And so, for example, here in this longevity project study, they followed 1,500 Americans from birth uh, to the present day. That was in 1921 when it started. And they found out that continu- continually productive men and women live much longer than their more laid-back comrades. So as with everything, there is a, a medium ground there. You shouldn't just be lazy and, and waste your life away, but you shouldn't be you know, hustling day and night and trying to make that big buck before you're like, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire before I'm 30 or before I'm 40 or whatever. Those are right. usually the things that lead to to um, long-term disease down the line. All right. So we already briefly touched a little bit diet, but what else does TCM suggest? Right. So another big thing is diet, exactly. Um, so the Chinese say you should eat moderate amounts uh, and a little bit of everything. They're not saying you should be a vegetarian, nor should you be like a keto carnivore guy. And you should eat regularly. And this might be opposing to, you know, the whole fasting craze nowadays. And, uh, and they also very much emphasize on eating seasonal whole foods. So the Chinese tip on health is, you know, eating moderate amounts, not too much, but not too little, and eat a little bit of everything and eat very regularly and especially seasonally and of course, whole foods. And they have this. And how do you define regularly? Like every three, four hours? Should you have five, six meals a day? Or how does that look? Again, I mean, you know, we're always in the West, we're looking for this one size fits Mm -hmm. all. And this magic bullet, you know, this is what everybody got, got wrong. And so if we just do this one thing and, and fast for 16 hours minimum every day, all our life problems will improve. And I wish it was true, but, you know, it's not. And so for everybody, it's a little bit different. And to answer your question, I think most people would do well with a bit of a fasting window. And should you 
and what is that fasting window? Just to give you a number, I, I, I think that 12 hours is a good number that anybody can pull off. And so like two, three meals a day, depending on, on your stress levels and, um, and on your health condition, on your age. And also uh, remember, and this is a big part, uh, and what season it is. Yeah. So for our ancestors, they would, for example, here in these temperate climates, they would have plenty of food in the summertime and they would probably eat five, six times a day. And then in the winter, they would eat once um, a week. You know what I mean? And in the summer, they would eat plenty of fruits and, and, and perhaps, you know, depending on where they were. And then it's, it's a different kind of diet, right? I mean, it's, it's a little bit, I guess, like an analogy is like how a brown bear is living in the summer. They eat a lot of fruits, a lot of sugar, actually, which causes them to put on fat, right? Because it's getting metabolized into high, high amounts of blood glucose. Right. But then in the winter, they Correct. eat no berries whatsoever because they don't exist, right? I mean, they only eat really meat. So they end up eating mostly protein and fat and they end up actually using up their own body fat during that time. Yeah. And so throughout the day, they're naturally going in and out of ketosis. You know, they're not staying into ketosis 365 days a year like the keto yeah. The keto camp is doing uh, nor are they never touching any fat or any animal protein like the the vegans are doing you know what yeah. i mean or the low fat people and so again and you know the chinese like i said they had these discussions already 2000 years ago and they have 2000 years of evidence and guess what they figured out uh, you know it's somewhere in the middle it's uh, if you are a you know a huge viking guy who who basically you know constitutionally uh, was was made to live on a bit of meat here and there and then fast rest of the time you're going to be doing better on a on a higher protein diet but you also don't want to be on a high protein um on a, on a high animal food diet the whole year round you want to you know see you know make it seasonal mm. and if you're if you have more of asian descent your ancestors were probably used to and had um, had evolutionary pressure to procreate better when there was a constant influx and a higher carbohydrate amount. And so, and you had a lot of sunshine, which actually protects you from the, you know, high, high vitamin D levels, a lot of anti-inflammatory agents uh, in the body, antioxidants that are protecting you from the damaging effects of a high carbohydrate diet, a high food diet, for example. And so again, it's all, it's always seasonal and contextually. And if, if you're, you know, an overweight person, for sure, you should uh, go on a more of a low carb diet and try not to eat too much energy in terms of fat and carbohydrates and rather eat more protein. I mean, don't, don't you think things have, of course, changed a bit in, in our modern society? I mean, when you think what may have been low or high carb a thousand years ago, it's probably been very different than what it is today. Of course. So generally speaking, we're eating way too much of these industrialized foods. And that's what Chinese medicine warns of. They say, you know, if you look at it, it doesn't look like a whole food. You know, if it's in a package and has more than three ingredients, it's probably not that good for you. So if you're, but for example, if you eat rice or a potato, there's still the cellulose and so the, uh, the even though the glucose load might be high, it's still just slightly creeping up because your body has to has to break up the cell wall of it. And then you're, you know, traditionally preparing food. So for example, you're eating oatmeal, but you're eating it and you 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 soaked it overnight in, um, in a little bit of yogurt. And so all the anti-nutrients, like, you know, a lot of people nowadays, they drink their kale smoothies year round and then they wonder why they get oxalate. I mean, why they get like kidney stones because they just ingested oxalates all the time with these these raw kale shapes. Mm. And so every everything has became really extreme where we're not really 
you know, a cow eats kale and stuff, but they're, they're <laughs> you know, eating seasonally. They're eating, eating different foods all the time. And so the Chinese are warning from just going for one kind of diet all the time and not adjusting it to the seasonal aspect. And there's actually, there's a great study here. Um, I'm going to just quote it. It was recently discovered that roughly a quarter of our DNA changes in response to the seasons. Levels of inflammatory gene expressions, for example, increase in Europe in winter probably uh, to help resist infections such as the common cold and flu, while in Gambia, they increase during the rainy season where malaria is rampant. So your body tends to be more inflammatory, for example, if you are of the Northern European descent in the wintertime. Mm. And so should you be eating a lot of fruits and, and a lot of things that are, you know, raising your blood sugar that are causing micro trauma to your inner, the inner vessels of your in the lining of your blood vessels that are further increasing inflammation? Probably not. And so the ancient Chinese, they pretty much, you just said, eat with the seasons and eat whole foods and eat a little bit of everything. So you should eat meat, but you shouldn't only be eating meat and, and just adjust your diet to the season and you're, you're, and, and, and prepare foods traditionally, like I said, with the, with the oatmeal. If you soak it overnight in like, um, you know, something like yogurt where there's, where there's lactobacillus uh, uh, cultures in there, they're actually kind of fermenting the food for you, taking away all these plant phytotoxins that are trying to protect the plant from being digested and, and everything will be well. You know, the answer is not to never touch a plant again, but to process these foods they were meant to be processed and, and all the natural people in the world, including the Chinese, they do it and they have it in their cuisines, you know, like potatoes, for example, in South America, they, they're, they're getting soaked for a long time. I think it's called nishtalinization and it's a sort of a, a milky kind of water where there's a lot of minerals in it and they're kind of de detoxifying these, these originally highly toxic potatoes for you. Right. And so it's always contextual, you know, the, the Chinese never say there's one diet that fits them all. But what they do say, and what I can say is that we should, you know, always have, um, they, they, they tell you to eat regularly, whether that means two meals or three meals a day. They tell you to eat all colors and all tastes. You know, a lot of people, they're shying away from, from the bitter taste. It's almost nowhere to be found in a modern food. And we're... That's less rewarding. <laughs> exactly. And the Chinese also tell you to eat most in the morning. Uh, and least in the evening, especially, you know, before going to bed. And modern science also shows that this is true because the, you know, the, your, your digestive enzymes are more, they're also going with the circadian rhythm and mm -hmm. they're, they're mostly, mostly present in, in larger quantities uh, uh, during the first half of the day. And it's also disrupting your sleep if you have been having late meals, late lunch meals, particularly. Correct. And then, um, and then here is this interesting study, for example, from Okinawan, and it's a it's a, uh, epidemiology. So you know, to be taken with a grain of salt. But uh, the Okinawans, uh, people of Okinawa, this is Wilcox and others, 2007. Uh, Okinawans ate significantly less calories than the average Japanese, and also gained less weight with age, and had more of DHEA in the blood. DHEA mm. is the because they've been eating a lot you know, of fish. The, the fountain of you hormones, how to say, yeah, longevity hormone. And they, they had more DHEA in their blood and they also had a longer life expectancy. And so this is epidemiology. So I'm not saying this is the only factor, but, um, you know, it's, it's some, it's some food for thought that, um, you know, all these the Chinese, they tell you to basically stop when you're 70% full and, and not to eat all day around, you know, to have a little bit of fasting period so your body can clean up, but also not to pull out these ridiculous fasts. So somebody who is already underweight, and who's maybe mm. always tired or a pregnant lady, should they be fasting 16 hours a day? Of course not, you know? Or for example, you're having a high stress load on, at your work and there's already a lot of stress going on in your body and you're hypo, hypo sympathetically active, you know, you're always in fight or flight. Should you then be fasting on top right. of that 
which is, is another sympathetic stimulus. No, you know, of course not. So, so that's what I mean. There's no one size fits all. And, and what, what I think a lot of people sometimes get wrong with fasting is they think it's like an excuse to skip a meal. Like, let's not have breakfast. You know, I'm just going to skip it. And my first meal is going to be lunch. Or maybe I just skip all meals altogether and I just have one large meal throughout the day. And you know what? For some people that actually works. And if you're that kind of person, if you're already overweight, you can pull that off. And if you don't have a lot of stress or health concerns, then by all means, I mean, or even if you have, you know, severe chronic diseases, but you're a very overweight person, I think what you just said is actually a good mm. strategy. But if you're, if you're doing it and you're feeling unwell after, you know, then, then it was probably, I mean, of course, there's always an initial getting used to period. But in the West, we always tend to go to these extremes, you know, from now on until forever, I'm gonna, only going to eat one meal a day. That's going to be dinner. And then it's hard really to, to change your your lifestyle or your, your habits if you take a complete 360 in, in all the lifestyle choices that you've been making in the past. Correct. And so the Chinese are just warning from, from, from of that. They're saying, guys, be moderate. You know, uh, the body likes it to eat regularly. But if you can't control yourself and you're always like eating, you know, two or three thousand calories when you're eating, then, you know, probably eating one meal a day is a good solution for you. But that's not probably not right. for the majority of people. So the majority of people will be doing well with two, three meals a day and uh, and, and skipping breakfast. Uh, you know, might actually be a good strategy to to lose the weight, and then if you can later on uh, uh, do it, and your your life permits, it will probably be better to to skip dinner, skip dinner step. That's what Chinese wisdom teaches. All right, and this is where we end today's show. Next week we will pick up where we left off and discuss what TCM has to say about exercise, sleep, and sexual well-being. In the meantime though, if you wanted to learn more about the things that we've talked about today, you should definitely check out our show notes on 20minute.fitness for additional resource links. You can also find Dr. Marcus Gadow on Instagram at Marcus Gadow. This is Martin Kessler out of San Francisco and you've been listening to 20 Minute Fitness.